Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Angèle Alain. Join us as we showcase treasures from our digital collections, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. This year, Canada commemorates the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812, a unique opportunity for all Canadians to take pride in our traditions and our shared history. The Government of Canada recognizes the War of 1812 as a defining moment in the history of our nation and has big plans to commemorate this event of national and international significance. This commemoration is just one of the many events that are bringing Canadians together and will continue to link us in the years to come. On June 18, 1812, the United States declared war on Great Britain and its British North American colonies in what is today Central and Eastern Canada. British troops, assisted by both English and French-speaking Canadian militiamen and First Nations allies, repelled American invasions over the course of more than two years. With the end of the war, the foundation was laid for Confederation and Canada's emergence as an independent nation in North America. Library and Archives Canada holds a vast and unique collection of records about the men and women whose lives were touched by the War of 1812. Aligned with the Government of Canada's commemoration of the war's bicentennial, LAC has digitized and made available online much of the 1812 collection, including muster rolls, pay lists for Upper and Lower Canada, claims and losses, certificates of service, medal registers, and letters and correspondence. For access to all newly digitized records, including our latest Flickr set, please find Library and Archives Canada's War of 1812 portal featured on our homepage. In addition to digitization efforts, LAC is also exhibiting a number of 1812 collection items at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. Entitled Faces of 1812, the exhibit opened on June 13, 2012, and will run until January 6, 2013. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for more information about the Government of Canada's and Library and Archives Canada's 1812 online portals. episode, we're talking with professional historian and professor of public history at Trent University, Michael Eman. Michael will talk to us about curating the War of 1812 exhibit, how it came about, why he chose to include the works he did, and will explain why the War of 1812 is significant to all Canadians. Hi Michael, thanks for joining us. So I understand you were contracted by Library and Archives Canada to curate the Faces of 1812 exhibit at the Canadian War Museum. What's it all about? When I was first asked to do the exhibition, they said, Mike, can you uh, pull together some portraits of um, everyday life, portraits of everyday Canadians' faces from the War of 1812? And indeed, the exhibition is called Faces of 1812. 
The problem that I first ran into, though, is that not everyday people had their portraits done in the early 1800s, and so I had to broaden the scope of the exhibition, including what they call documentary art, landscapes, images of people in different formats, perhaps in a, a, a painting or a print, uh, other types of items such as globes and maps and that to talk not only about the faces of the people, but the places and the spaces that they inhabited. So it's such a wide selection. How do you decide what goes in the exhibition? It was really tough. We started off with probably 200 items, and we kept on narrowing down the list. This exhibition, I should be, say, uh, should be said, is at the Canadian War Museum in the front area of the uh, museum, right beside their temporary exhibition space. And in that exhibition space, they are mounting a very large exhibition on the War of 1812. So we wanted to do something that would complement and not uh, you know, repeat the, the types of uh, issues that the Canadian War Museum were going to portray in their exhibition. So this is a complementary exhibition, a sampler. And as such, we went from those 200 items and went down and down and down until we got 30 of the, uh, of the best of those hundreds of items. So you've chosen a breadth of not only material, but also perspectives of the war. Well, whenever you create a museum exhibition, there are many uh, types of aspects you're trying to do to engage the public, to get people interested into the content. So it's not just pictures at an exhibition, pictures on a wall. You want people to to somehow be uh, provoked by what they see. Now, this isn't in an angry sort sort of way. Provocation in the museum sense is to get people thinking about the content. Right. Louis-Joseph Papineau, if many people know, was the moderate rebel leader in the rebellions of uh, Lower Canada in 1837. He was the long-standing speaker of the assembly in Lower Canada. He was a lawyer, and in 1834 he helped draft the 92 resolutions that started the, tried to start the dialogue of change in Quebec and Quebec politics. So a lot of people say, well, why is he in a War of 1812 right, exhibition? exactly. I was just going to ask that, actually. And the thing is that in the War of 1812, it shaped many people, and of course, Louis-Joseph Papineau was alive at the time, and he was part of the uh, Canadian militia at the time, and of course the war, the, uh, the conflict they had against the United States shaped many people's ideologies and mindsets, and also helped shape Louis-Joseph Papineau, and it also shows how long it took the war left an indelible mark on the political structure of Upper and Lower Canada. In fact, issues of a more Republican, perhaps a, a different style of government, couldn't even be mentioned in polite company in the first decades after the war because there's so much anti-American se sentiment. So people like Louis-Joseph Papineau had to take a more moderate path. And of course, as we know, there are other people who took a more radical path in the rebellion. But part of uh, Louis-Joseph Papineau's moderation came from this experience where he was, in fact, part of the government and in fact part of the militia. Did Pepino participate in the War of 1812? He was a, a captain, but he was part of the Judge Advocate General's office. So he served in the function as a lawyer, dealing with legal matters that would come up during the war. Did Pepino bring a, a French perspective to the war? Oh, definitely. He, uh, of course, being a, a, a Quebecer, he was born in Montreal. He, you know, he is indicative, and his image is indicative of a lot, much greater uh, contingent of uh, French Canadians that helped fight in, in the war. Indeed, the war brought together French Canadians, English-speaking Canadians, First Nations peoples, all against, uh, and the British, of course, all against a common foe. And there were, at this time period, or just before leading up to the war, there were great tensions, language tensions and political tensions in Lower Canada. And so the war drew people out of their particular tensions and made a common foe for everyone to fight against. Let's talk about the portrait of Sir Isaac Brock. 
What's so special about this portrait? This is one of the most iconic images of Isaac Brock that we have. In fact, it is so popular that the government of Canada has used it in its official War of 1812 commemoration site. And there are four images being used as the key images, key icons of the era, and this painting is one of them. It is a, an exciting painting. It's also fascinating because this painting was done long after Brock had died. It was painted in 1897. And what this painting does is uh, appeals to what I call the historical imagination, our idea of what the past looked like. And in fact, many of the paintings in this exhibition were not painted during the War of 1812, but were painted subsequently after the war. I see this as a lot like uh, historical movies today, where you have a reenactment or a director's impression of how the past was. And in an era before the moving picture, of course, there was historical paintings that gave an impression of what the past was to the public. So this portrait says a lot about the artist. Indeed it does. The, uh, it was inspired from uh, a sketch that the artist found in Guernsey. Guernsey is one of the Channel Islands, and it's where uh, Brock was born. He went back to his birthplace and found this in the family home, this, this image, and then he used that as the inspiration for his portrait. And so it does tell you a lot about the research that went into the painting, a little bit about Forster himself, his sense of romanticism, but it also talks about the public at large that have now um, adopted this image as the key image of Isaac Brock. When you think of Isaac Brock, you think of this image. Can you tell us about Brock's role in the war? Sir Isaac Brock was a civic administrator and a general. He is well-liked. It it's funny, he, he has a, a, a a dual role in the War of 1812. As a military leader, he was well-liked by his men. In fact, he was brought in before the war to quell problems that were at Fort George and in the Upper Canada uh, region, uh, and he successfully uh, ended the problems among soldiers that were infighting in that. And afterwards, he was then appointed the civil governor, the lieutenant governor of Upper Canada, as well as in charge of the forces of Upper Canada. He did, was not as successful uh, as the civil governor, he tried to tell the legislature, there was in Upper Canada and Lower Canada, there was an elected legislature, and he said, please, war is coming, we know this, we need more men for the militia, we need to uh, suspend habeas corpus, we need to do all these types of items that will help the civil power fight a war. And of course, the Upper Canada legislature, which was full of uh, loyalists who had been, who basically are Americans, had, had come up in the American Revolution and a bit afterwards, they were like, oh, do we really want to suspend civil rights? Do you really think there's going to be a war? We'll give you a little money for the militia, but don't bother us, Brock. Brock had a large fight with another gentleman named Georges Prevost. Prevost was the governor of all of British North America, and he was based in Quebec. Prevost thought when the battle came, we had to have a strong Quebec City, a strong Lower Canada. Brock says, you know, when the battle comes, it's going to be fought on the Niagara Peninsula. So they had conflicting issues too, and of course Brock proved to be right. When the battle did start, it was all in the Niagara Peninsula around and also Detroit and, and that era. And Brock was very successful at the beginning because he was prepared, he was ready. He won the Battle of Detroit, he was successfully repulsed the early American incursions, and then he met his tragic end at the Battle of Queenston Heights very early on in the war in October of 1812. Is that why he's perceived as a war hero? Indeed. He was a very tall man, over six foot tall, handsome, athletic. The, the soldiers loved him, but as I said before, the civil authorities, uh, the, the legislators and uh, people like that, were not as keen as Brock. But there's nothing like dying in battle to make you a universal 
hero. And indeed, phrases such as the savior of Upper Canada, the hero of Upper Canada, have now been bandied about. It played into that, again, the public conception at the time that a true hero was selfless and died for the good of others. And indeed, Brock did die on Queenston Heights, leading the charge. And uh, both American and uh, British and Canadian uh, authorities mourned his death. So that showed also that there was a universal sense of, her of heroic, his heroic deeds and nature and his honor that he exhibited on the battlefield. Can you tell us about the artwork entitled Meeting of Brock and Tecumseh, 1812? Yeah, this is a very interesting piece. Again, it's iconic. I wanted to also appeal to uh, what is called the familiar. So we used images like Louis-Joseph Papineau, which are unfamiliar, to provoke people's response. Why is this guy here? Why is he important to the War of 1812? On the other side, images such as Brock or Brock uh, meeting Tecumseh uh, go to what in museums and uh, curatorial studies you call the familiar. People who visit a, a museum or a site want to learn, but they also want to have confirmed that what they've already learned is true. They want mm. to see things that they expect to see. And in fact, this appeals to that. This painting was done by C.W. Jeffries, one of the greatest historical painters in Canada. And much like the Forster painting of Brock or the portrait of Brock, C.W. Jeffrey's painting happened long after, almost 100 years after the War of 1812. And it appeals to our historical imagination. And when you think of the War of 1812 or many Canadian scenes, you think of C.W. Jeffrey's paintings. And indeed, these are his romantic visions of the past. I'm not saying they're necessarily incorrect. He researched them well. He was excellent at his job. But again, they appeal to his historical it's imagination. It's an interpretation. It's an interpretation right. of what happened. This, there was no paint. There's no artist when Brock and Tecumseh actually met, you know, scribbling it down. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, this is going to live in history. Of this course, yeah. Brock and other people wrote down about the meeting. And Brock, you know, had great respect for the Shawnee uh, chief, Tecumseh. And so this, I wanted to show this image to, one, talk about how these images perpetuate into the memory of the War of 1812, but also for the content itself. This is an important alliance between First Nations and uh, British North Americans. Can you tell us more about Tecumseh? Who was he? Um, and why was the relationship important with Brock? Tecumseh was a Shawnee chief. Uh, the Shawnee are an Algonquian-speaking peoples in the Ohio region of uh, now the United States. After, I'm going to talk a little history here for a moment, that after the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the American Revolution, one of the provisions was that the British were to hightail it out of their forts in the Indian Territory or the Ohio country. That way, the, it would clear the way for American settlement. The British didn't want to go. And in fact, they needed another treaty in 1794 called Jay's Treaty to say, okay, your time's up, guys. Get out of the forts. This is our territory. And the British grudgingly left the forts. Well, the fr British all this time had been creating allies, uh, making uh, alliances with the First Nations in the region. Well, the Americans, as they started filtering in, of course, came into contact. And a series of First Nation American wars uh, erupted. And it was quite violent on both sides. There was atrocities committed. And the Shawnee were one of the peoples that became face-to-face -face against uh, the Americans coming into the, uh, the settlers coming into the Ohio country. Well, this escalated and, uh, with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. This is when France owned a big chunk 
of what is now the United States. And in 1803, for the mere price of 15 million bucks, which is a deal, they hmm. sold this to the United States and doubled the territory of the United States. So if the Americans had any ideas that the entire continent belonged to them, doubling their territory in one foul swoop kind of fed that along. So there was more population pressure to move out west, go yet west, young men, head on out west. And of course, there are already peoples living out west, such as the Shawnee. This came to a bit of a head in 1811, where there was the Battle of Tippecanoe, right before the War of 1812, where Tecumseh's brother, called the Prophet, he was a, a spiritual man, um, had a failed battle with the American settlers, and tensions were at an all-time high. So Tecumseh, even though the Shawnee were independent peoples, believed it was important to ally themselves officially with Brock and the British, because they saw the uh, impending storm, they saw the writing on the wall, and they knew that the British had always been friendly with them, and that they were, you know, of all your allies around them, they were the best uh, bet to partner with. And when the war came, the Shawnee, as well as many other First Nations peoples, fought on the side of, of the British. Can you describe what the painting of Brock and Tecumseh actually looks like? It's a very rich, warmly colored painting. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful image. It's not a portrait, so it actually shows uh, the two men meeting uh, and uh, Tecumseh wearing more earthen tones, of course, and a native dress and, uh, and regalia, and Brock in his red tunic with hand extended to Tecumseh. It is a very emotional, emotive piece, and it is also, of course, of the era, the Edwardian era that it came out of, romantic, expressed tones of, of manliness, and of course, meeting as equals. You've included a work with another well-known Canadian historical figure, Laura Secord. What's happening in the work, and why is it significant? Much like the uh, C.W. Jeffries of Brock being Tecumseh, it's another coming together of two people. You have uh, Laura Secourt in a dramatic pose relating her story to Fitzgibbon, who is uh, listening with intent. And again, it's again in headquarters around with inside uh, a cabin with plans and tables and other soldiers. That again, that kind of sense that there was the nerve center on the frontier. And this time, instead of being Brock's nerve center, it was the one that Fitzgibbon was at. Now the story is, this is preceding the Battle of Beaver Dams, the story is that Laura Secourt's husband had been wounded and he was convalescing in their house and she had overheard plans of the American battle, uh, or the American, uh, attempted American uh, attack at Beaver Dams, so she walked 30 kilometers to get to headquarters to warn Fitzgibbon about, uh, about the impending conflict that the Americans had planned. The story then goes through different reiterations and changes. For some people say that Fitzgibbon actually knew this was coming and was, thank you very much for coming. She, he, he appreciated her coming, but there was, you know, uh, you know they, are, they had it under control. Other parts of the story say, no, in fact, she was, you know, integral into, into warning uh, the authorities about the American attack. There are stories about her leading a cow, <laughs> not having a cow. There's, it's amazing how historical memory and, and myth mix into uh, mix into each other especially when artwork is is maybe done 50 years later 100 years well, later exactly and the really fascinating thing about Laura Secord is nobody knows exactly what she looks like and that's because no portraits of her were ever done during her life right and this makes you question too and in the exhibition we show this image and uh, you know but there's a larger story and it makes you question why weren't any portraits done of Laura Secord a heroine a veritable heroine of the war of 1812 how did women in general factor into the War of 1812? 
It's very fascinating. On both sides, there heroines emerge, such as Laura Secord. On the American side, uh, there's Fanny Doyle, and we actually have an image of her in the exhibition as well. Uh, Fanny Doyle manned Fort uh, Niagara, the cannons at Fort Niagara, and helped repulse uh, British invaders. So there are many different stories of women doing heroic deeds. But of course, women were alongside the men in many other ways. We have a, a portrait of a woman who was in Kingston as a widow, uh, who ha was raising her family. And as Kingston became one of the major naval stations in, in the Canadas, she saw the whole uh, uh, noise and the, and the craziness and the tragedy of the war emerge around here. War women su supported their husbands, of course. You know, there, there, there were constraints on what women could do because of the roles that they had in society at the time. Time, but there were women such as widows who supported their families and took on a very strong role, which was important, keeping the home fires burning uh, for their sons or, for, or if they were married for their husbands who were fighting in the conflict. They were, you know, women had a very integral role in keeping the community together. And quite frankly, not enough research has been done. Some people, such as Diane Graves and others, have written on the role of women in the, in the War of 1812, but a lot more can be done to expand our knowledge about what the role of women played. Here's archivist Patricia Kennedy of Library and Archives Canada. She talks to us about the important role women played in the War of 1812. Women played a, a role that's it's more important than has been recognized. This is one of the issues that, until relatively recently, the majority of history was written by men. And, uh, well, most history is written by the winners. So we have their perspective, and they may not tell us much about uh, women, children, Aboriginals, or any other minorities. And yet, there are incredible rich sources of information on the lives of women. If you look at the War of 1812 losses claims, many claims are put, put in by widows or women whose husbands are temporarily absent. And they detail a wide range of information about the family circumstances, about their experiences, about their le level of education. And all of this is sitting waiting to be discovered. A large proportion of researchers using the resources at Library and Archives Canada will discover things that they haven't found in history books, that, that each historian writes from a particular perspective and leaves other things out. So when you go into the records yourself, you find things that they didn't consider worth mentioning in their history book. In the exhibit, there are two artworks about uh, the sea battle between the Shannon and the Chesapeake. Can you tell us about those two pieces? Yes, I included that because, again, uh, a lot of what we think about the War of 1812 is the campaign in Upper Canada. Sometimes we think about Lake Champlain, and sometimes we think about the St. Lawrence River and uh, Charles de Salaberry in, in that part of Quebec. But, we, you know, the, the, you know the, the battle was fought in many areas uh, in the War of 1812, and a large theater of war, or area of operations, I should say, was the Atlantic Ocean. Joining us is archivist Timothy Dubay of Library and Archives Canada. He speaks to us about the significance of the naval battles during the War of 1812 and the wealth of resources available at LAC documenting them. Uh, Britain's Royal Navy had more than 600 fighting ships in commission at the time of the War of 1812. By comparison, the U.S. Navy had eight frigates and 14 sloops of war and brigs 
and these were limited to service in the Atlantic. Britain imposed a blockade of the U.S. seacoast. Uh, the U.S. ships could slip out to launch hit-and-run raids on British vessels, but these were largely ineffective at disrupting British shipping. Both sides also employed privateers, which were licensed raiders. Privateering could be quite lucrative, but it was also quite dangerous. The records of the prizes taken on the Atlantic by Royal Naval ships and the Nova Scotian privateers are held today by Library and Archives Canada. Also held are captains and lieutenants letters. The Americans were getting very angry with how the British were controlling the waterways, and indeed British ships would stop at will American ships, vessels, and take or impress sailors. Now, an impress sailors, basically, what they were saying is that you're a sailor from the British Navy or the Royal Navy. We think you've deserted, and we're going to take you back. Now, of course, the Americans got angry at this because how do you discern a British-born subject and an American subject? Often the accents are the same. And British law said, once born a Briton, always a Briton. So the British thought they had a case that they could just impress American sailors off of sailing vessels. And so the, the Atlantic Ocean and the naval campaigns took on an extra uh, for, for ferocious nature between these uh, long-standing grievances, because of these long-standing grievances uh, between the British and the Americans. On, in June of 1813, the Shannon, which was a British vessel, and, and the Chesapeake, which was an American vessel, met. Now the captain of the Chesapeake, the American vessel, was a man named James Lawrence. And the captain of the Shannon was a man named Philip Brooke. Brooke was a fanatic. He loved gunnery. He loved to train his men. He'd say, can we take a break? He's like, no, we're going to keep practicing <laughs> the guns. Keep manning the guns. And, and when I say guns, I mean cannon. That's right. right and right. so keep manning those guns. Keep firing those guns. And, and naval gunnery was an art. It was also one of the most ferocious and... Um, bloody ways to fight because the things that you would put in cannon are not just cannonballs but different types of shot canister shot which would be canister uh, like a canister full of little balls like a shotgun blast right. grape shot which would be a canister with big balls in it which would really uh take out yeah. a, a, a the limb whole side of a boat or a side of a yeah. boat iron uh, you had chain shot and rod shot different shots that you'd show, shoot just to take out the rigging of the ships. And when naval battles were fought, this is where you have this romantic idea, which is quite true, of the broadside, where the two ships, instead of going nose to nose, would side go side to side. side to side and let her rip, so to speak. And the per <laughs> last man standing was the person winning. Well, in June of 1813, the Shannon and the Chesapeake, the two ships, engaged. Um, they're about 40 kilometers east of Boston when this happened. So this gives you a sense of the expanse of the war. This is not happening in the Great Lakes. This is not happening outside of Halifax. This is happening Boston. right near Boston. Well, they see each other, and they get within 35 meters, side by each, side by side, and they let it rip, broadsides fire. And there's about six minutes of broadsides between the two ships. Now, typical theory was you take out the rigging, and then you render your opponent disabled. Mm -hmm. Brooke, on the other hand, decided to aim all of his cannons at the gun decks and the, of the American ship. And when they fired the broadsides, they virtually disabled the firepower of the American ship and destroyed a lot of the, the fabric or the structure of the ship. In fact, the two ships within the six-minute fight got caught. And then, in a very swashbuckling sense, Ropes were thrown across, and Brooke led a landing party, and there was another 13 minutes of battle on the deck, bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
And these two images that are shown in the exhibition, one is a very romantic image of this bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat on the deck of the Chesapeake. Uh, and the other one is a cartoon, a caricature done poking fun at the Americans and how cowardly they were. In fact, it was, the Americans weren't cowardly at all. It was a bloody, devastating right. battle. The British did win in the end. Both captains, Captain Brooke and Captain Lawrence, were injured. Uh, Lawrence died, and Brooke had a piece of his head taken off. And with a severe head injury, they had to go to a, a, a lieutenant, a minor officer, to sail both of the ships back to Halifax. The War of 1812 should have been a war where the British Navy or the Royal Navy was on top. Uh, but the Royal Navy was the most powerful sea-fighting force in the world. But they lost many of the battles. And so the Shannon and the Chesapeake conflict um, created a lot of pride amongst the British, rekindled pride for that they still were on top. Indeed, the very romantic picture that is being shown in the exhibition sh sh was distributed widely in England, again, to show here we are on top once again, and here's our ho heroic men, just like Brock, but in, in the case of Captain Brooke, he didn't die. But again, it shows a sense of selflessness to the cause and a sense of romantic uh, engagement that occurred. And the caricature, again, shows how the Americans were depicted as weak and cowardly in the face of battle. So what was the significance of this battle for the War of 1812? On the whole, not a huge significance in the battle per se, but again, the propaganda war, the yeah. idea of inspiring the imagination of people that Britain, once again, is on top in a naval type of sense, and, and, the, taking, and, the, and the shame for the Americans to have their ship taken back uh, it, it was very important. It's a mind to, game. Yeah, exactly. Right. And a lot of war today or 200 years ago was all about the, the, the mind games, as you say. The morale the, and the pride and, and exactly. the feeling. For those who may not have heard of the Shannon and the Chesapeake engagement, you may, however, have heard of the phrase, don't give up the ship. That was a phrase uttered by Captain James Lawrence, the American captain of the Chesapeake, before he died in the engagement. There's so many of these phrases that come from the War of 1812, and they have entered our collective memory. And what is fascinating is a lot of people now don't realize where the origins are. For example, a lot of people may say, don't give up the ship, but it came from the War of 1812. What can people hope to get out of the experience of visiting the exhibit? I think, firstly, it will be fascinating to look into the eyes of somebody who experienced the War of 1812. A lot of these portraits depict people who were there, and the portraits were done either at or just after the war itself. And you can see the eyes of people who had experienced such tragedy, such hardship, such political upheaval at the time. The other part is to question what we, how we see the War of 1812. So beside the portraits and paintings of people who are actually there and painted near the time will be portraits of, that were done much after the fact, sometimes almost 100 years after the war. And they depict how we continue to see the War of 1812 and you know, how we face the War of 1812 in our modern lives. And finally, looking at the vast variety of material culture items, the, uh, the archival documents that are there, not just paintings, portraits, and documentary art, but the globes, the maps, the, do uh, the textual documents. That shows as well the breadth of collections at our Library and Archives Canada and the breadth of our human footprint. You know, what we leave behind us is quite large. And even though a lot of it deteriorates, lots of it gets lost, perhaps burns or is, you know, destroyed, 
we still leave a footprint. And an exhibition like this, I think, is important to tie us today to that footprint of the past. What can Canadians learn about the War of 1812 at Library and Archives Canada that they can't learn anywhere else? Library and Archives Canada is such a treasure. It really is the most detailed repository of historical documents that we have in this country. And so what can you learn here? What can't you learn here? We have the documentary art. We have globes and maps, textual documents, including military documentation, and as well as private papers. Uh, Library and Archives Canada is structured to collect both the private papers of individuals and the public government documents. This is a unique type of institution. Uh, the United States and Great Britain, for example, don't have one institution that handles all of this. So it's, in a sense, it's your one-stop shop mm -hmm. for Canadian history, and especially the War of 1812. So what uh, can you find here? What can't you find? I have to emphasize again, you will find those military public documents, the government documents, but you'll find the journals of hardship, the journals written by everyday Canadians. You'll find the paintings, the portraits used in the exhibition, plus so much more. We started off with a list of over 200 items, and that's just for this exhibition. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of items just waiting for people to discover. If I'm interested in doing research on the War of 1812, well, where do I start? That's a great question. It's very difficult in one sense because there's just so many places to go. The, it's all around us now and I think people are realizing we're in 2012, 200 years has passed and truly it's time to celebrate or commemorate, I should say, the War of 1812. One of the best places to start would be the Government of Canada's War of 1812 portal. It's a portal that links to different sites such as Library and Archives Canada, such as Parks Canada, which have uh, invested heavily in the celebrations or the commemorations, I should say, of the War of 1812. There are so many sites to go to, but those, the portal is a great way to direct you to different uh, sites. At the Library and Archives Canada's own site, there's so many search engines for different types of documents, so I definitely recommend people go there to, if you, to get down into the nitty-gritty of the research. Can you tell me what you think is the most interesting aspect or historical aspect of the War of 1812? Well, there's so much to say because, you know, in one way, it, the War of 1812 united French and English-speaking Canadians, First Peoples, and the British against a common foe. And that is very fascinating that, you know, it takes that type of event to bring people together. And then where do we go from there? But another thing that really fascinates me about this is the question why. And I think that's the historical question. It's not who or when or how. They're important questions, but why? Why did the War of 1812 happen? Mm -hmm. Why were certain people remembered and certain people forgotten? And why do we remember it today? And I think uh, some people say, well, I live out in Vancouver, or I'm in Iqaluit. What does the War of 1812 mean to me? And physically, not a lot, because those regions were not, you know, settled in the way they are today and were not involved in the conflict. But the question why is a personal question. You can ask yourself, as a Canadian today, why is this important to me? Why is it important to be Canadian? And why is our history important? And I think every Canadian can ask those questions and then maybe get fired up, get really enthusiastic about the conflict, about, you know, the, 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 the people, the faces, the individuals that were involved along the way to make us who we are today. Well, thank you for being with us today, Mike. You're very welcome. Thank you. To find out more about the Government of Canada's commemorative initiatives for the War of 1812, please visit 1812.gc.ca. And don't forget to visit Library and Archives Canada's Faces of 1812 exhibit at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa until January 6, 2013. 
For those unable to visit, check out our Flickr set, including many of the works on exhibition. To learn more about Library and Archives Canada's commemorative projects for the war's bicentennial, and to access our Flickr set, please visit our website at collectionscanada.gc.ca slash 1812. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Angèle Alain, and you've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thanks to our guests today, Michael Eman, Timothy Dubay, and Patricia Kennedy. For more information about our podcast, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at www.bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts. <laughs>